Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode is about governance as code, or really the human factors that make governance as code a challenge, and why looking at things like audit and how we determine what has happened and respond to it in an automated way may be even more important, or at least a great first step to adding controls into a system. And we actually talk about a lot of human factors of what makes it hard to create a governed system or what leads us to think we have a governed system when we might actually have a biased system or an unevenly governed system. As an intro note, I should say we, we spent the first couple minutes of this podcast talking about our agenda and eventing uh, discussions that we want to have coming up. And those conversations themselves spell out a lot of interesting topics in eventing that we will discuss. So uh, hang in for those first couple minutes and then we will get straight to the governance. And I know you will get a lot out of our governance conversation. Enjoy. We have we have uh, a pretty open calendar for the for this group in the next couple of weeks, and I'm super interested in you know what topics do we want to talk about. That's a good. I have a, a recommendation. I love it. Yeah, event <laughs> monitoring. Event, event monitoring. monitoring. Yeah, yeah I'm all for that because, one. because that that is the, the that is the Prometheus' strongest weakness. Um, <laughs> Prometheus is great at capturing data at regular intervals in a lossy format. Um, but event monitoring, you, you have bursts. Um, you, you cannot be lossy with that. Um, and it's hard to find a system that, that can perform as well at scale for event monitoring as Prometheus does for metrics. I think um, that's a great topic. I would add as a, yeah. as a subset of event monitoring is uh, logging and turning that those monitors, monitoring events into um, usable data. Because <laughs> that I, kills I, us. <laughs> I, I mean, the, yeah. the, the recommendation for that is don't. Uh, but, <laughs> well, you have yeah. to. You have to. Well, uh, I mean, so so with Prometheus, for example, that the recommendation is like if you need to collect metrics out of logs, just emit the logs, the, the metrics directly. And, and, and oh, right, right, those. right. But yeah, but, but um, you know, but in the telecom world, we we have event monitoring, and we have reporting. So yeah. maybe it should be reporting, not logging. Yeah, well, they're all inter interconnected. Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. and and we need both. Yeah. Because yeah, one thing our customers are always asking for, because we, you know, of course we monitor everything. Our customers are like, "Can you give us a log or a report of like what's been going on with your network for our network for the last uh, month or so?" We're like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. And this <laughs> yeah. is this is where the word monitoring is an interesting word with this. This is like we, we talked about this on Monday. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that, that we used to we we get a lot of requests for monitoring that turn out to be event processing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I, I actually think if we wanted to do that as almost a double header, I would look at orchestration 
uh, events and orchestration. Yeah. Um, because what we, we really have events and monitoring, and then there's an events and orchestration, which is, um, you know, re- responding. Yeah. Yeah. Response. Right. Well, I know that there's a lot of confusion out there between the difference between monitoring and reporting, because they are actually two very different things, processes. Yeah, and yeah. the the reporting becomes extra critical when you, you uh, extend everything out into the um, the event horizon into like IoT and stuff like that. Edge, yeah. Distributed. Oh yeah, edge is huge. Yeah. Yeah, the the edge stuff. I mean, back uh, actually, in some ways, uh, Verizon didn't know they were doing it, but they. Uh, because they had it, they saved our asses a few times and actually improved their own processes because some of the stuff that we encountered actually was stuff that Verizon hadn't even really considered until mm. our little edge thing that we were working on with them yeah. <laughs> kicked in. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um it's interesting because right now I'm working on a project. I think Rob, I mentioned this on Monday um, to to do end to end SLAs because in the industry right. that doesn't really exist. So you know it's it's been a heavy lift to do this, but oh. you have to end to end SLAs rely on being able to capture metrics that you can then translate into <laughs> you know a show the customer yeah. This is what when it was down, we have the logs or we have the reports and B, um, you know, when the customer whines and says, I want more, you can say, well, actually, no, this was when it was down. <laughs> so it, it's actually it, it all of that stuff translates into SLAs and, and metrics to support them. So when you like, but for metrics, if something's down, so this <laughs> Maybe we're going to end up diving into this topic just by bringing it up. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if I should stop and um, say, "Hey, look, we're going to talk about this the next few times," and then I'll and then hold off. It's a because I, I have a ton of questions. Well, a governance yeah. code is actually related. Okay, <laughs> right. Let's then let's 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 then let's switch gears into governance as code because I think what you're describing is is actually a governance as code topic also yes it is so. it is because we have i forget what you call it sma or something it's anything basically we enforce our slas automatically so it's governance as code <laughs> we take the slas and we translate them into something that that's something that can be measured and and it's a metric it can be measured and then we generate, you know, automatically generate our credits based on a metric. Governance is code. Absolutely. Interesting. I, I see, I see the, the, the mapping. It's, it's interesting because there, I think, um, some of the governance is code stuff I've been hearing is different, but uh, let me come back to that. If you are, I'll share my screen. Um, if you're looking at a system where uh, 
you are ensuring, so you have to see in, in your description with an SLA, there is something that says, these are the requirements that I have to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be codified so the system can report it. And then there's a, a mitigating behavior of the system. Right. So I, actually, I think that that is as a governance of code definition is actually really functional. Um, right. right policy, I, I policy is checked. There's a mitigation, mitigating behavior, right. all automated. Yes. Well, it also increases. Uh, I think it it's good for performance and for uh, corporate policy to encode as much as possible because once it's encoded, when there is a uh, when you do go out of uh, out of bounds and you automatically lose money, then the company actually has much more incentive to figure out what went wrong and to mitigate it within the company so they don't lose have to pay their customers back more money which is unlike what Comcast does. Sure. So it it definitely uh provides incentive to fix to to uh, root cause and fix things. Yes it's yes. fine though go ahead sorry well I was gonna say um Rocky, it's actually cheaper for us to just automatically pay out the credits. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And it also uh, gets you to continue to improve, continuously improve your system because that suddenly beca- it, it accentuates, it accentuates to uh, C-suite and everything below that by not dealing with those technical debts that they're losing money. Yes. Yes. Obviously we want to reduce the amount of, of credits we give out. Yep. Right. So you, so ideally what you would have is you would have your SLA governance component, but you would have a predictor or uh, you'd be able to have something that would trigger as an indicator beforehand that you're, you're, you're getting closer to that threshold so that you would be able to, do it. And that's, I think one of the problems with governance as code is that we typically look at like controls, although I, some of the governance as code stuff I've seen is very much like linting Terraform, um, which is before the stuff has been spun up. So that's, that's good. Um, what you're describing is, hey, we've had an outage. I need to make sure that I'm telling people and I've, I've issued credits and things like that. And I'm assuming you have learning before that happens to be able to say, hey, we're, you know, this customer is approaching the service window timeout and there's there's governance um, in that also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we can, you know, if if it if it's an outage caused by, let's say, a backhoe cut or something, obviously. Mm. Uh, so this brings me into it reminds me of what went on with Rogers. And do you have any insight into that and whether their lack of this actually made it worse or anything to say about the Rogers incident in Canada? Insights, no. Opinions, yes. Well, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping Beth might have some insights being kind of sort of in the same. Uh, uh, well, we, we get those too. Um, you know, all, all telecoms get those sorts of things and they are, and I should point out cloud providers do too. 
Um, yeah, but that one was like pretty damn systemic. Uh, what was when was the last time Verizon had a systemic outage like that? Uh, never. Not that I can remember. Exactly. <laughs> so I was like, Challenge. you guys are doing something more right than they are. <laughs> or the wires haven't crossed in the wrong way yet there well, she spent they spend more money on it but again i think it's part of encoding governance to make sure that things can't get out of hand beyond a certain point so it the a governance encoding for slas uh keeps uh, the teams working, keeps the, the teams funded to make sure that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah, like with regards to governance and then what happened to Rogers, there, there's many things that went, went wrong. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, like the, the most glaring ones are, okay, with, within the context of governance is that they did not have the automated process in place to prevent such a large-scale um, outage, uh, or at least they, they coupled their systems in a way that caused a cascading f- failure, uh, which I consider a governance failure. Yeah. Um, the other part is also, again, they, they did not have the process in place to quickly recover uh, like, if we take them at word, and and what happened was a bad update that basically drops their their uh, their BGP uh, yeah. advertisement, it should not have taken them a full day to recover. Right, I was going to say they should have been able to fail back like within an hour. Exactly, they should have been able to just fail back. Yeah. So, so those are the two most glaring failures that I see there, I, and I and I think that governance or was related to that. They, that either they did not have the process in place to prevent the, the cascading failure, or and they, they did not have the, the the governance in place to ensure that they have the capability to recover or, or bootstrap the system quickly. Um, I, I can tell you a story about uh, Verizon did a big upgrade. Um, this goes back about 20, 25 years ago. So it was a long time ago, but we had to do a big upgrade on um, on our network. And uh, what we did, we it actually took about two years to get ready for this upgrade because every device had to be touched and it was fully tested and everything. And basically what we did is we set up um, full parallel um, devices and then swung over. And the actual um, cutover took about two minutes. Um, But it took two years and millions of dollars to get that set up to be ready. Yeah. (laughs) There's also the the third failure is that that, that, they failed to provide DR for critical systems. Yeah, that's... Taking the banking network out and and taking nine uh, like emergency right there you uh, go. systems out there that's, that's irreconcilable. It's, it's, yeah, 
Yeah. No, Verizon has never had anything at this scale outage. We, we did have, I know we took out, um, this happened a few months ago. Uh, Amazon's, um, one of Amazon's centers went down and it was the one that was located in New York city um, because there was a, um, one of the big uh, NNIs went down. In, East one. That's yeah. always the one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, they have dependencies. They don't, they don't, you know, nobody actually understands. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, there was resiliency, obviously it didn't affect the other network. Although, Shockingly, Amazon is pretty bad about they don't have a whole lot of redundancy, much less than people are think they do. You know, and they and they tell people all the time. I mean, in in this discussion of, <laughs> of right. the SLAs that we've been doing, you know, because our customers d- depend upon us being able to give them SLAs that approach 100 percent. Um, and, you know, to do that, we require, you know, we have like a whole set of things. You must have redundant equipment. And if there's a backhoe cut, doesn't count. Or if there's a widespread outage that affects everybody, doesn't count, blah, blah, blah. Um, but still, because we have that, we're able to give customers, um, you know, close to 100% SLAs. But we require redundant systems throughout that, you know, throughout their network to do that. Now, yeah. AWS is fairly famous for A, not doing that, and B, telling customers, oh, by the way, if you want high availability, it's on you. (laughs) You have to design your system properly to support high availability and not have single points of failure. And they're terrible about telling you how to do it. That's because they don't know how to. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, they could ask, ask the telecoms. We know how to do it. <laughs> well, the difference sure. between utilities and uh, uh, just a, a company that, that grew into a role that uh, is expected to uh, be more reliable than it ever thought it would need to. Right. That is a good point. Yeah. That's true. So could, I mean, this to me is an interesting question from a governance as code perspective. They really don't do much to, and then they don't want to because it would interfere. Or maybe this is the question for governance as code. If Amazon had more governance as code components to you know, do that type of check and put those things in, it would create a drag on people's ability to use the service. Uh, it would but, cost more. <laughs> not, not just that, uh, but also it would affect their ability to be agile in terms of the services that they offer. Like when you're a cloud provider, like you, you can't just sit on your laurels. You, you have to continuously add new features. Uh, otherwise, uh, you you'll, you'll bleed to death because other cloud providers will overtake you and you won't be able to catch up. So and yeah, in, in, in that sense, like the like the their lack of their redundancy is it's endemic uh, <laughs> as part of the ecosystem. Uh, and this is one of the things to me that we've we've sort of gotten very used to. Um, you know, uh, moving the, you know the move fast and break things. Um, 
methodology this, which is absolutely counter to governance's code. Governance's code is, is uh, I mean, I, I feel like we're trying to slipstream it in when I think about like Terraform. So like one of the things that we're doing in this release is that we, we enable Terraform linting. So every Terraform plan is going to get linted before it gets run. I, and I'm actually nervous from that perspective that we're going to start breaking people. And they're going to have to then troubleshoot and figure things out. And the user experience is going to decline because we improve safety. Well, yeah. so this is this. We had this whole thing in in OpenStack when suddenly we had to, you know, when when we introduced RevStack and suddenly we started breaking people. Yeah, because but uh, the the question is. Do we want cloud to be utility or do we want cloud to be that special off the books project that goes around IT, which is what, <laughs> which is how Amazon got big and how it still operates. And this whole thing about more features, more features, more features, right. the, the technical debt is just skyrocketing. It's huge. And only companies like yours, Rob, even think about that. Well, and and the telecoms who are sitting there going, do we even want to compete in this market? Because it's crazy. That's a very, it's a really, it's a real concern. Well, that was the advantage the, the cloud providers had in terms of the, the whole conversation between on-prem or public cloud. Because it... If we would imagine a scenario where on-prem behaved in the exact same way from a, a governance standpoint as public cloud, there's not necessarily the need to, to run off to an Amazon and use the credit card because you can get the, the resources instantly. Um, obviously, there's the capacity and some of those other aspects. But if developers or whoever could have requested a, a, a workload on-prem and got it essentially instantly without all the hoops and the hurdles. And, uh, that's right. No, that's right. This is... Well, yes, yes or no. And the instantiations of of uh, redundancy and stuff like that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yes, on on prem. If you have the spare capacity, you you can bring. This is not almost instantly, but um, historically mm -hmm. on prem, you always struggled to to meet capacity. Well, I should point out that the. Cloud providers do is do struggle with that as well, because you know for profitability reasons they want to they don't want to have excess capacity right because that that's right around idle, and but they also need to meet demand so you know they they play the same game, I mean so do the telecom providers. Yeah, keeping it ninety uh, percent occupied means you've only got ten percent headway and uh yeah. every once in a while that large project comes in that needs it all plus <laughs> yeah talk to talk to the texas uh, energy commission about uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. I, I haven't said all that um like it, it is not impossible to to do the resiliency and, and redundancy uh, in, in the cloud, but again, like as, as as you all know, it's it's a lot more complicated 
not comp- not necessarily complex, but in many cases also, but de- definitely complicated and, and certainly costly. Yeah, it, it is not impossible. And certainly there are plenty who do it. Um, but it involves laying on of resources and money. And uh, going back in people who people who understand it. So the resources, a number of human resources that can do the planning and whatnot. Like you said, two years to do a switchover, but that was because you needed it to actually work when it happened. Period. The end. Right. It, it also means having the mm-hmm. management the management that understands that that redundancy is necessary, and and not just trying to cut costs because. Hey, look! I can say it was so many dollars a year, and well, that's fine until we have an incident. Um, yeah. But yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Now I was just going to switch uh, switch context. So if you still have something, oh, I was I was going to say that if you take a look at some of the enterprises out there, smaller ones that really do need um, SLAs and whatnot, you'll find that some of those enterprises have actually moved to smaller cloud providers because some of those smaller mm-hmm. cloud providers do a, a better job of providing an environment that allows the enterprises to meet, keep the SLAs in, uh, meet the SLAs without mm-hmm. jumping through as many hoops as you have to for Amazon to do it. Yep. Yep. So, well, it's also yeah. access is easier. <laughs> we, right yeah. now, we're we're dealing with you know we have our own cloud that we run a lot of our customer stuff on and all our stuff, and we're exploring you know it's expensive etc. and it needs to be upgraded, and we're exploring into AWS. And you know what we're spung, smacking into oh none of our internal BSS OS system can access AWS. <laughs> Yeah. For security reasons. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. And uh, that's, that's why if problem. you've ever yeah. done work with the U.S. government, especially the DOD, you sit there and go, how can they ever move some of their major R&D into AWS? It just doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. There doesn't seem to be a path that gives them both the security and the access that they need along with the, uh, the, the governance they need for working in something like AWS, the customer has to enact the governance and for something like a defense department or something else that requires security and secrecy, you need to create your own governance and you need to instantiate it as code to make sure that you don't have the stupid uh, uh, incidental uh, leaks and whatnot. So more complex a system, the more you need governance as code. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I agree with you heartily on this. I don't feel like we have governance. No, the it's right now it's on the back of of the uh, the projects or the enterprises 
uh, that are using the system. It's okay. not built into the commercial cloud, most of the commercial cloud systems out there. You have to build your own, roll your own. Right, because, well, the commercial model, my, my favorite yep. drumbeat, the commercial model is structured to bypass governance, corporate governance to encourage adoption. I, I We have the similar thing where the, a lot of products, to me, feel like they're marketed into um, one team at a time. And the value of, you know, actually having enterprise teams collaborating is it's hard and therefore it's, we actually build things that discourage it rather than encourage yeah. it. Silos are what most, most companies consider silos wonderful things, except, except when they're not. <laughs> except, except right when they're, well, because they, in, inside their own, this is the false optimum, right? You're, you're, you're optimizing them back to gold rat is right. But um, you're back to optimizing your work and making your stuff really efficient when the organization actually would be more efficient if you supported upstream and downstream. Yeah. Well, in, in a sense, silos are a misguided attempt at, in, at implementing governance because ultimately, with governance, what what you're what you're doing is you're you're adding controls and, and, and boundaries that are meant to steer your work in in the right direction into you know, redundancy, yeah. recoverability, what whatever. Whatever ability you want to implement. Sorry, make it no but um, but and and silos kind of give you that, but but they're implemented wrong. Right. So here's a question for you: What types of features would be useful for clouds to enable? enhance or encourage governance's code within uh, customer uh, cloud instances or pods or whatnot. So what would you need to actually be able to do governance's code within a public cloud? What, what could the public cloud provide to make it easier? Auditability. That's the, that's yeah. in my experience, in order to implement governance, you need to know what's going on. And unfortunately, it's always been that's an add-on these days, and it should be a built-in component. Huh. Do you think audit? Because I don't. I don't think of audit as a governance thing. Governance to me would be stopping somebody. Doing oh no, no, like no. Your in the finance world, audit is very, very definitely part of that conversation. Okay, like you, you you can't stop something going wrong if you don't know that it's going wrong. And that's what auditing gives you. Yeah, and you can't stop future events if something goes wrong if you can't figure out how it went wrong. So even a bigger thing is mm. I can't verify that your code actually works. I can't audit the event. Yeah. And, and that's become a serious problem with AI. Because if AI is a black box, you have no idea how it's working. Oh, yeah. You cannot uh -oh. verify. 
And there's a project, I think, called Bloom right now that's out of Europe by Hugging Face that supposedly is fully auditable and audited. Well, auditable. All the the points are there that if you want to audit it, you can audit it. But um, they're like Beth said, that's that's like the big thing in AI now in the universities and uh, and some of the other uh, the ethics groups in AI is the need to be able to uh, see how the AI got to the conclusion it, it did. Oh yeah. And it's only going to get worse. It's already a black box. With with huge amounts of resources just pouring into it, literally, it's more like a black hole. (laughs) Because all those computing resources are just dumping into this thing that just comes out with an answer, yes, no. Maybe. And more and more resources go into that that singular answer. Uh, Speaking of AI and auditing, uh, there was something in the news uh, this morning about uh, China now uh, having approved AI to make uh, judgments uh, like in the legal system. What? Yep. Oh, China's doing some really crazy, nasty things with AI. It's really nasty. Uh, they're they're actually doing the whole predicting you're you're going to be a criminal thing. That's called Minority Report. Remember that's that? what they're doing right now. Yes. Oh, that's that's me. That's really super scary, because you know, unfortunately. Um, as has been shown by many studies, uh, you know, if you tell somebody, you know, if you, uh, they used to do this, I don't know if this was still a thing when you went to elementary school, but when I went to elementary school, they would rank the kids by, supposed by intelligence. So, you know, they'd be the stupid class and the smart class. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that it had nothing to do with the kids. If you, if you put a kid in the stupid class, they would act like they were stupid. If you put a kid in the smart class, they would act, they would be smart. <laughs> so yeah. there's a name, there's a name for that in the experimental design um, where, where they had an, they, they I love, this is actually an interesting, because it's a governance question also, um, where they did an experiment where they were trying to figure out what increased people's productivity. And so they had a, a a room where they would observe observe people and they would do things like more light or less light or more of this or more of that versus their control room. And what they found was that the observed room always performed better no matter what changes they did because they were they knew they were being observed. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and, well, I can actually do, be an antidotal uh, story about this. My mother was is very, very nearsighted, like to the point where she's pretty close to blind. And for some weird reason, my grandparents missed this about her. So they thought she was kind of dull and you know, she was always falling and tripping when she was like two or three. Well, because it turns out she couldn't see a damn thing. <laughs> and 
So when she went to elementary school, you know, she was put in the stupid class and um, the teacher noticed that my mother would like get up close to the workbook, like, you know, three inches away. And she would to, to try to read what was on the workbook. And right. she would always get the answers right as long as she was like peering into the workbook. So the teacher contacted my grandparents and said, well, have you gotten her check for glasses? And uh, sure enough, she was just really nearsighted. And um, she quickly got moved to the smart class. <laughs> But, you know, think about that. If somebody, you know, that teacher hadn't been there, she would have been sort of labeled as sort of this dull kid. Yeah, my my husband actually talks about um, the uh, the college counselor and some other folks in her in his high school, well, especially the college counselor was really, really one of those stupid kids. And his last name was Blackman. And there's this other kid whose last name was Blackburn. And Blackburn was a slow kid and uh, an underachiever, underperformer, but also not that bright. And the college counselor confused him with my husband. And so the, the counselors at the school would call him into to a meeting and always berate him for such poor performances. And they would call my husband and, and talk to him like he was a third grader. Yeah. <laughs> and this is like stuck in his head that, that this happened. Uh, and it definitely affected where he ended up going to like state school uh, because none, neither of his parents had gone to college. And because he didn't get the direction, he didn't go to the good school to begin with because they were sending Blackburn off to to Caltech uh, high school programs. (laughs) Oh, that's so frustrating. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. Well, hey, I'm old enough to remember that, you know, women in general, girls in general were just considered stupider than boys. So... (laughs) And and it's that way again. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I was there too. <laughs> now you can stop that fool. Now that, that my dad died, my mom was told, you can stop that foolishness with your daughter and bring her back home. She doesn't need to be at MIT. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> Fortunately, my mom didn't tell me that till after I graduated. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Because my mom was, my mom remembers, it's like, she wanted to do this, all this stuff. She was a a speech pathologist and she could be a teacher, but a guy she went to school with, with, who she didn't think was as smart as she she was, he ended up being the administrator because he was one of the few guys who actually went through the program. So they all became administrators because they were guys. Yeah, that's exactly right. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> well, I mean, this is this is I I it's an interesting topic because I think there's the human side of the governance's code piece is really real. Yeah, the bias, but then again, you have to make sure you don't put the bias in the governance's code. It's really hard not to. It's really hard not to. 
you know, look up that MIT study about face recognition, which uh, turns out works great on white college guys and pretty much nobody else. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, you know, even just uh, blood ox sensors that failed so miserably in COVID because it couldn't do dark skin. Well, they, they were over-reporting the, the dogs. No, black black people no, were getting under-reported. Well, they were over-reporting well, the concentration of oxygen in the right. skin because, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Right, which, which to their detriment, right? Yes. Exactly, yeah. In right. some cases, their death. Sadly, yes. Sadly. Well, the healthcare system is very biased in general, so. Yeah. Um, well, the the thing that that in some ways amazed me is that these things, most of them, are made in Asia, and at least you know, China doesn't have as light as as European skin. But uh, you would think that they would have a little bit better adjustment to get slightly darker skin or at least medium dark skin, uh, but even though they're manufactured there, the bias is continued from the European. Uh, well, the studies are done on white college, white male college students. <laughs> I, and the, and the, the, the specs are college students in general, which has, which are also a skewed population, even if you take out male. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, the, the, the specs come from Western countries and, and China just copies them. Right, right. Yeah. Well, a classic example is is birth weight. Birth weights, it turns out, and growth patterns are all based on 1950 studies done in the Midwest on bottle-fed Northern European stock. Oh. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so talk about biased. <laughs> yeah. And... And BMI, uh, a lot of the, the studies on what's supposed to be uh, optimal weight and stuff like that was done during the Depression. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> when everybody was starved. Yep. Oh, yep. that is an interesting thing I did not realize. Yeah. It was one of those things that the, the government used it as a work program getting that information. <laughs> right. Well, and they keep changing the BMI. So I have a, a good friend who, for various reasons, because she runs her own business, gets private insurance, and she has for many years. And they kept charging her for being overweight and her family being overweight. And I was like, that's weird. You're a person who walks, she walks dogs, right? So she she gets a lot of exercise and um, she eats a very healthy diet and she's not overweight at all. But she kept telling me, oh, I get this extra hundred dollars a month that I have to pay because I'm overweight. I'm like, you haven't been overweight in your life. Um, you know, and she, she's like, well, that's what the insurance tables say. And I'm like, well, and they get worse. They keep like lowering the weight, the BMI numbers. Yeah, well. And that was something that started in some ways started with football players and migrated to the military and that 
they all these folks would come out with uh, BMIs that said they were fat, and these guys had to do the uh, the water suspension to prove that it was muscle. If they could prove it was muscle, they weren't getting dinged. So all these football players, and then uh, they were doing it a lot because they had to show that they they really were muscles. But in the military, especially for women uh, and certain body types of men, if they would come out as overweight and they would get dinged. So they had to do the suspension to prove that they weren't overweight. And that's a painful little thing to go through because you you put yourself in water, you exhale everything in your lungs, you submerge yourself. They measure your displacement. So you have to stay submerged with no air in your lungs for a while, and then you can come back up. <laughs> Complete waste. Yes. So the, the whole BMI thing is just wrong, <laughs> but yes. So there is a biased uh, governance uh, metric that causes a lot of problems. <laughs> And, and there are biases in, um, uh, you know, it's not just it's not just in like body weight or, you know, those types of metrics, but it's also in just there's biases in the network data as well. So, you know, getting back to that earlier thing about AI and governance, you know, there is inherent bias in that data and it's really hard to tease it apart. Do you have an example of network bias? Um, yes. So um, we've been looking at, um, so network bias can be very um, influenced. The, the data can be influenced by where, um, uh, by, by where the data is, where the traffic's coming from and what, um, what transport is being used. So um, you can you might not be able to see all the data, for example, because if it's on a dark net, it's just magically not there. Although right. of course it is. <laughs> so it can throw off it can throw off false data. You could say, oh, the network's doing great and it's only running at 20% when because there's a bunch of dark data on it. Um, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I suspect that also at least part of uh, the issue could be with um, with radio towers and which ones get replaced, which ones have been replaced with newer uh, equipment and which ones haven't. It could bias how much data is coming across without you realizing that it's being limited by an old radio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you see that with wiring too. Cat, the cat wiring. Yeah. can't tell you how many times I've troubleshot. Oh, my God. Why isn't it working? Well, because you have a bunch of Cat 3 still floating around. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, oh, is, yeah. this is what's so fascinating to me about, about the governance question. Here is there is so much of the human element to it. And I think we approach governance as code as this sort of, you know, oh, I'm going to apply uniform policies or I'm just going to put things together and enforce rules. Um, and we really work hard as people to, you know, undermine that 
either it's from an equity perspective or it's a get out of my way perspective. Um, I don't, I don't know, right. It's, you always have those exceptions and how they and how they work, or you just don't take the time and you you turn things off. And that's that's really, I guess, maybe this is the why audit is really the answer for governance as code, because yeah. you, it, it's really hard to say no to people. Mm -hmm. um, it's really really hard to say no to people or remove preferential treatment, which is is a you know the opposite but similar. Right. But it's much more powerful to be able to say, hey, I've seen what you're doing and I'm, you know, going to tell you that there's a problem. Here. Hey, but, circling back to the beginning and, of the conversation, why is Texas paying the Bitcoin miners money to turn off their damn equipment? when they're just a basically a suck on the system. Uh, because <laughs> own the Bitcoin mining operations have more power than the average user. So because they have power, you have to pay them. Whereas if it were uh, just some small business that was sucking all that power, you could just turn them off. Right. It's perfectly fine to turn individuals off, but you can't turn off your friend who, uh, you know, from the country club. Right. Well, I, I, this is a whole other topic about uh, the corruption of how this, this because oil and gas in here is so ripe with corruption. Oh, oh yeah. And, um, and, you know, in, inside baseball and, and all sorts of political favors and things like that. Um, I actually think a lot of the Bitcoin stuff is, is walked straight into those the welcome arms of of that industry. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a. And it's. I, and I it's, wish I had more more proof for y'all, but. Well, actually, you know, it's it's these power plants that the folks don't want to retire them, so they get paid by the bitcoiners to provide the power. So there's a coal plant that's still. Uh, generating that was supposed to get shut down that didn't because Bitcoiners came in and go. put in a, a New York state actually just recently enacted some laws against Bitcoin mining that made lots of people happy. But it was it it takes a lot of uh, political influence to get those mm -hmm. laws in place and fight the, the oil and gas and Hey, if it, yeah, that's, I mean, this, the way they are in Texas, if, if putting together Bitcoin keeps a coal plant burning. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, gas, natural gas plant burning. It's then. the natural gas plants, particularly because they had a bunch of uh, um, uh, aluminum smelters that got shut down yes. in the, the 1990s and 2000s because they weren't profitable. And then these Bitcoin guys come along and they're like, hey, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're some Texas town with 500 people. We'll come in and we'll save your jobs um, because we'll turn the turn this plant back on and just mine bits. bits. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. On that cheery note, I think we've gone from governance code to conspiracy theories as code. <laughs>
Um, although I don't think they're conspiracy is, theories. I think they're just flat out, flat out corruption. Yeah, flat out corruption. Yes. <laughs> but and that's also what governance is supposed to uh, limit. Yeah. So if we had the governance uh-huh. system, you could limit that stuff on a fair basis instead of paying those guys. Yeah. No, I, I think this is this to me is one of the big takeaways, though, is that transparency and audit are probably the first steps for a company. Transparency. Yep. Yep. Well said. Cool. All right. Well, next two weeks, we're going to talk about uh, eventing. That'll be cool. Great. Sounds fun. All right, everybody. Fun. Thank you. I appreciate this. I love how these conversations twist and turn. Um, <laughs> make um, some fun. And by the way, in the background, I was working on the ONS Summit. Uh, I'm doing a, the edge computing. Uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the uh, day one, two, three operations model. Oh, good. Oh, cool. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, I'm fascinated by by what people actually mean when they say that orchestration and stuff like that. If you want to collaborate, I'm not I don't think I'm able to even go to that. Yeah, it's in Seattle in November. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it conflicts with other things I've got to do. But I have a day one bounce ideas. I'm I'm available for it. A day one, two, three in the life on an edge computing deployment is what it's called. <laughs> that will be a good time. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Talk to you later. Well, next yeah. next week. See ya. Yeah. Wow. The more I talk about IT and process, the more I realize and know that it's ultimately about people. The fact that we build silos in organizations to keep from having to deal with uh, working together as teams and then encourage that by selling tools that discourage working together as organizations makes me a little sad, but that's what it is. We would like to have you on our team in that your voice on these podcasts would mean a lot. Please join us at the 2030.cloud, be part of the roundtable. Get your voice, comments, and thoughts heard, and uh, we want to hear what you have to think. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.